on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Ahoy there. Welcome back to another episode of The Big Fish. Coming up, a really positive environmental story amidst all of this climate change horror. Stinker takes you up a lazy river. Checking out next week's Big Sydney Boat Show at Darling Harbour with Tim Stackpool. And our first cast takes you to the heart of Tasmania with fishing writer Greg French and great stories about Frenchie as a very inquisitive little boy exploring nature. Coming up on The Big Fish. Greg French is one of our great fishing writers and not a bad fly fisher either. He knows how to cast a tight loop and he knows how to stalk a trout in those gin-clear waters of the Western Lakes. Of course, the Western Lakes weren't always protected. This is something that uh, Greg's been involved in all his life, really, and and many other people before him. And he's written a beaut book about it, The Wild Heart of Tasmania, uh, A Living History of Lake Malbina and the Western Lakes. And Greg joins us. Good morning, Greg. Uh, good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. That's all right. It's good to talk fishing when the, the snow's thick on the ground outside and you're in Tasmania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Greg, I, we're going to work our way through this book because it's, it's a cracker. It's one of the best you've written and lots of good stories and lots of good characters and lots of history. But I wanted to start at the start, which is a good place to start, and your early years, why you became such a, a lover of nature, such an observer of anything with fins or feathers or fur in Tasmania. Take us back to those early days when you started your own menagerie in the bedroom. Ah, oh, yes. I've just I've always had this absolute fascination with um, you know, animals and plants and geology and pretty, pretty much everything natural. And when I was a, a little... I invented stamp collecting, Scott. I, um, I don't know if you remember, back in the early 60s, uh, they produced wonderful stamps with birds on them and fish and everything else and um i didn't know anyone collected stamps but golly these animals were good so i collected them put them in a matchbox <laughs> um apparently other people collect stamps too but i didn't know it then and by the time i was i don't know three or four there was a little swamp on a vacant block over from where i lived at orford in the in rural tasmania and it was just knee deep perfect for a four or five year old kid to wander around collecting water bugs so I'd find all these strange-looking animals in the water, um, and then I'd take them back home and keep them in class jars, anything at all that I could make an aquarium out of. And I'd hatch, you know, mayflies and um, dragonflies and caddis and everything you can imagine and and see what they turned into. Um, and so I just had, right from the outset, this you know, affinity with, with water. But Dad was actually, um, before he got married, he was a commercial fisherman, they... They owned um, the farm on Mariah Island, French's farm. So anyone who knows Mariah Island, that's my family farm. And um, when I was growing up, he would take me out to the Mercury Passage and we'd go handline fishing for cod and flathead and that sort of thing, which was wonderful when I was a little kid. But honestly, back then you'd pull up, have three hooks on a, on a handline and sometimes you'd pull up three fish and two squid um, before the line hit the bottom. Wow. And yeah. so, yeah, so it was just a bit too easy. So I ended up exploring all the creeks around the house, looking for um, you know eels and galaxids first off, and then um, 
progressing into trout later on. And you made but, aquarium, uh, you made aquaria, I guess, of, for, for, for these things to be housed in. Before we get to that, we're speaking with Greg French, whose new book is just out, Wild Heart of Tasmania, which is a great look at the, the preservation of the Western Lakes and some of the characters uh, who, who did that, and he was uh, one of them. But uh, I, I believe you also took in orphan echidnas and, and any other little critter that uh, you could bring home and had a little zoo going. Uh, that'd be great, you know, the folks walking in and standing on an echidna. <laughs> my my mum was just so tolerant with that stuff because, honestly, I had leaky aquaria everywhere. You know, I remember one corner of the house rotted through the floorboards <laughs> with the thing. But I'd have, you know, blue tongues giving birth underneath my bed and my kid was running around and, you know, there were joey wallabies hanging on socks off doorknobs everywhere and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that, that um, affinity with nature is completely and utterly innate. And I have... Um, it's very, very hard to define what wilderness is and it's hard to define what wild is and it's even harder to define what natural is. Um, and some of my close friends in the conservation movement um, sort of feel that my affinity with trout's a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a letdown, bit of a weird thing, yeah, yeah. But you know, for me, right from when I was a little kid, it was never about whether things were native or not. It was about whether things were wild or not. So well, you, had no... a, you had a you had a freshwater aquarium where you could see the the bugs hatch and that would have helped you with your nymph fishing later down the track uh, with nymphs coming in you know becoming adults and things and do, I don't know where they went when they came out of the aquarium in your bedroom and then you had a saltwater one didn't you and, and you didn't really know as a kid what was native what was introduced but they, they were wild yeah that's right um all I knew was I didn't want tropical fish and I didn't want anything to buy out of a pet shop you know and going into the wild and collecting your own um, animals. I think Mum offered of offered you a goldfish, didn't she? Didn't she? Yeah, was, uh, no way. I wanted goldfish, um, but so the freshwater aquaria, particularly um, by the time I was, you know, six or seven, I'd progressed from insects to fish, and um, the fish that I had in there were things like tench and, and per- red tin perch, um, and I had no idea that they weren't natives. They were just things that lived in the local, you know, creeks and ponds, um, and I loved them. And saltwater aquaria as well. That um, they were great. Like you'd have flounder, flounder uh, you know, half the size of your hand. Um, they would learn to come up from the bottom, sit onto your hand when you had it on the surface of the water, take a sandworm, then slide off your, your hand back down to the to the riverbed. And sandworms, as you know, have got pinches. Yeah. There used to be these Herculean wrestles with the <laughs> flounder trying to swallow a big sandworm. You know, sometimes wow. the sandworm would crawl out its, gl- its gills and sometimes would grab its eyeball. <laughs> um, flounder always won in the end, though. And Greg, I believe it was amazing where these these fish and critters you collected turned up in the house. Is that right? Yeah, well, I, I had a um, a lot of galaxids in my freshwater aquarium. When I changed to saltwater aquarium, I wasn't really sure which ones would live in saltwater. Like I suspected that maculatus would the jolly tails, but the, jo- the jolly pages. jolly tails. So they do the. The, the spawn runs, some of those are uh, like the white bait, that the, the, the big the sea runner. Yeah. yeah, they are the white bait. And they, um, uh, yeah, and they migrate, or they, they migrate out to sea, they live in salt water for a while, they come back, they live their adult lives in fresh water, and then they spawn back down in the estuary again, right at the level of high tide. Like in New Zealand, they're known as milkfish because the, the milk from the spawning males turns the water white. There's so many of them. Um, but other than that, the other galaxies, like 
uh, Cretaceous as adults. They don't go back to salt water again. So rather than risk killing them, I threw them all into our galvanised water tank, which was a direct feed to the kitchen sink. So this is um, your water supply for, for mum in the kitchen? water supply, you know, at home. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> did, did your mum know you put them in there? Yeah, they weren't too fussed about it. I mean, that, there was an advantage. They ate all the mosquito wrigglers, so we never had mosquito wrigglers coming out in the water anymore. That's good. So that was pretty good. But then, yeah, we just completely forgot about them. And 10 years or know, 15 years later, you know, my mum says, oh, we need to replace these water tanks at the end of the leak. So I went down and did that for her, and only to find that there was a thriving population of galaxids still in the water tank. They've been breeding in it. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> We're speaking with Greg French, who's written this beautiful book, Wild Heart of Tasmania, and we'll sort of serialise it a little bit on the big fish and talk about some of the, the great characters that he's met along the way, some really unique, tough, uh, industrious uh, Australians down down in that wild part of the world, but this this early chapter about your, your life, I mean, and that is probably why you're in love with these fisheries too, because to see every every scale on that flounder sitting on your hand wrestling with a giant sandworm, and to see it come up, and and they can strike so quickly. You know, I remember uh, lying on the jetty a few years back with my son, and we're walking off the jetty. Had been fishing on the end, catching little tiny fish on a a little hook and, and letting them go and, and I saw a flounder on the bottom and I, I just lay there with him and I dangled a prawn, a little piece of prawn on a hook. I, I said, now you just, I gave him the rod, you just put that in front of the flounder and you watch what happens and he just had it about halfway from the bottom in about two feet of water and this thing in the blink of an eye and a, and a big ball of sand, uh, you know, clouding the water struck with the the speed of a, of a viper, you know, it was just so quick. You couldn't see the movement with your eyes, uh, and it was just, wow. And then all of a sudden it's on the hook, and, and we quickly put it on the, the, on the jetty and then let it go. And, you know, that, yeah. that, that is just mesmerizing and addictive, isn't it? And that's what really we do with the trout in the Western Lakes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I first went to the West. Look, I could have been, there's a whole heap of things I could have done with my life, as long as they involve deep immersion in nature. Um, you know, I could have been a photographer or anything. I chose trout fishing had a fascination for me because it's hunting. You know, you, you, here in Tasmania, we really cast until we see a fish, um, and then it all becomes about um, experimentation. So that you can see a fish, um, perhaps behave to a fly a different way. Will it behave differently to a different fly? Will it eat a fly? Um, you know, more reliably if it's a different colour or you might find an aggregation of fish somewhere in a lake this week and they're not there next week and the question becomes why and so you develop theories and you go <laughs> and test those theories so it's, it's very and you'll have them reject looking at it you'll have you, them reject every offer and then uh, another time I think of a windy day on one of the western lakes where my uh, red tag got washed onto a mossy rock and hung there and the fish raced over jumped out of the water and pulled it off the rock a rock, you know. Oh, yeah. I just think, what the hell? And then you'll you'll put a beautifully presented um, parachute black spinner in front of a fish on a calm day, and and uh, it'll look at it and say, nah. Yeah. Well, I, I first went to the Western Lakes um, in the late nineteen seventies, um, and I went there because David Scholes had written in Fly Fisher in Tasmania, nineteen sixty one, I think that was published, um, that the Western Lakes offered the feeling of um, treading unknown paths, like that of the explorer. And that that feeling of treading unknown paths, the feeling of being an explorer, was highly attractive to me. And when I got to the Western Lakes, and then you know, 
crystal clear, shallow water where you can see every fish. Hard, I was spinning in those days, and hardly any of them, once the bad weather had passed in spring, would look at your your law. You know, you just see a hundred fish in a day, and not get one of them to eat your law. And so it became a natural progression then from meeting people who were um, hunting down individual fish using cockroaches on monofilament, <laughs> and and then doing that for a bit and then realising you're most of the way there to fly fishing, um, take it up. But of course the hard thing in Tassie in the late 70s, early 80s was finding someone to teach you how to how to fly fish. So you bumbled along doing it yourself. Yeah, and wow. I still remember that first fish at Lake Naomi. You know, I'd been fishing with a spinning rod and a black spinner hatch all day, getting nowhere. Went back to camp, resolved to leave the spinning rod. I've been carrying a fly rod with me, you know, and 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 sort of when you're comfortable with a spinning rod and you're uncomfortable with a fly rod, the fly rod, even though it's there, it hardly gets used. But this day, it broke me. So I went and got the fly rod and thought, I'm just going to fish because I'm not doing any good with a spinning rod. And then I cast, woeful casting, to a whole bunch of fish. But then finally, the, the fly just happened to land directly in front of one of these black spinner feeders and that slow swim up to the fly and that wide mouth take my word i was hooked for life after that <laughs> you were hooked you were hooked oh look it's just wonderful to talk to you this is a great book i'm going to really look forward to, to working our way through it just before we go greg what else did you have in your aquarium so you had a freshwater one you had a saltwater one you had one that leaked so much it rotted through the floorboards um you had flathead okay. what's that sorry you had a flathead a tame flathead i think uh yeah yeah well we had um uh, freshwater flathead, which are, uh, what else are they called? They're called sandies. Um, but they were good. So in freshwater flathead, one of the great things about having an aquarium as a kid, you would read stuff all the time about how they fish, a, even fish that move from freshwater to saltwater, they need um, they need to do that slowly. They can't take, they can't withstand a sudden change from fresh to salt. But, you know, when I was a little kid, I'd have one freshwater aquarium that's big enough for fish and then I'd decide I'm going to be tired of that you know I want to get a saltwater aquarium so I'd look at all the fish in a freshwater aquarium and the ones that I knew couldn't tolerate saltwater I'd let go in a farm dam and then the other ones that I knew yeah, did like eels and freshwater flathead and trout um, I'd try and keep them in my saltwater aquarium so I'd put them in a bucket and I'd go and get some saltwater fill up my aquarium and then put the ones that were in fresh water, plump them straight into salt water. I never had a mortality. Every wow. single one of them lived. Do you reckon the, the, the trout were, were a bit more robust too? Because salt water is a, a you know, nice and clean environment, isn't it? Um, you know, it, it's, it's got its own sort of um, antibacterial properties. I guess so, but it just doesn't fit with anything that, that I'd like, yeah, a slow transition is what everybody tells you. <laughs> you used to plonk them straight in. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's one of those things that it's an important lesson to learn as a kid. Not that other people are wrong, but that you have to test and retest and retry things all the time because biology, unlike physics or chemistry, um, there's no hard and fast rules. Things that you learn somewhere, like if you grew up in Tasmania, you might think that rainbow trout can't possibly outcompete brown trout because they just don't here. But then, you know, you get to New Zealand and rainbows have no trouble outcompeting brown trout. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, 
yeah, right across Australia with brook trout. You know, brook trout don't don't compete with browns at all, um, and have trouble with rainbows. And yet, you go to I don't know the Pyrenees in Spain or anywhere in South America, and the brook trout are often the dominant species, even when browns and rainbows are present. So that um, that turning of your presumed knowledge on its head. Um, it's just one of the major attractions, I think, the fact that you know that you're never going to know it all. Yeah. What about some of those interactions, putting these these uh, tank mates together? That would have been fun. Yeah, no, it was really good. Uh, but collecting was, was the best fun. Like, you know, as a little kid, you'd go down. We, go, we had in the Prosser estuary, there's eelgrass beds, and in the eelgrass beds you'd find scorpion fish, soldier fish, um, you know, pipe fish, um, eels, freshwater flathead. Um, and you would drag a little bait seam net through the eel grass, and you'd just come up with so many, like hundreds of different species. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we had toadfish in the aquarium. They were pretty cool. Seahorses occasionally. Um, blennies, you name it. Yeah. They were all in there. Uh, yeah. It's just a great, a great upbringing and, and sort of an insight into the man. Look, uh, looking forward to, to catching up with you again down the track. Wild Heart of Tasmania was the book. It's just out and it's a terrific read and it sprang out of the need to save the uh, Western Lakes wilderness from um, overdevelopment and privatisation. So it's certainly um, a, an interesting book that, that it came out of that uh, particular need. We'll catch you next time, Greg. Okay, thanks, Scott. Good to talk, as always. Great author, great fishing author, Greg French on The Big Fish. The Big Fish on ABC Radio. It's The Big Fish and Carl Scherf is well known right through the uh, Central West particularly for his great work on habitat restoration and fighting tooth and nail to uh, save our native fish. And of course, if you don't have habitat, you don't have fish and lives on the central coast of New South Wales and was really heartened by the news that there are now 13 breeding pairs of osprey around Tugra Lakes and Brisbane water. And uh, back in the 60s, 70s, uh, with DDT and, and people shooting them and all the rest, uh, there were none. It is really good news, Carl, isn't it? And they uh, share the fish that we chase too. Good morning. Good morning, Scott. Yes, it is. It's absolutely wonderful news, particularly on our local environmental front around here, where we've lost so much habitat uh, in many places and continue to do so, much to my great chagrin, uh, that these birds are back and breeding up. And yes, uh, from your observations, they are catching some of the fish which are probably less known to most anglers, but uh, apparently they too may have made somewhat a comeback around uh, this neck of the woods. Yeah, it Specifically, is. Specifically, Long Tom which I've never seen or had never seen until I was living in Gosford up until about uh, eight years ago, uh, but had caught incidentally and released because at the time I was more concerned they were some sort of sea snake, <laughs> my ignorance, but I looked up my uh, rather good books of reference at the time, this is going back about 40 years ago, when I caught uh, on lures whilst uh, spin fishing for flathead off Jimmy's Beach, I caught long tom, a couple of long tom 
on lures. Yeah, they're incredible uh, surface predators, aren't they? They're just amazing oh. the way they slash and carry on. Uh, it was interesting. I was on Broughton <laughs> Island years ago with Stinker, and I was over the backside of the island and had a fly rod, and I had some little little surface flies made out of um, you know foam, sort of popper, popper type things that, for bass and whatnot. And, and there was this sort of um, uh, wolf pack of long toms, all about two or three foot long in the old scale, that were, were hunting just near the beach. And you could see them really clearly in the clear water. So I, I was throwing this surface fly, and every now and then one would get it caught in their wicked teeth and it'd take off like a, a mini marlin and dance across the top and then throw the fly. It was just such good fun for an hour or two. I, I don't think I, I pulled one up the beach to let go. They all eventually got off by themselves with that wicked, uh, wicked uh, beak full of teeth. Yes. And, uh, well, much the same, only I was using hard-bodied lures at that stage for uh, flathead lizards, as we know them. But, uh, yes, they and they look very serpentine, uh, as they, and that's what made me think, good God, sea snakes. I don't yeah, they're, one of those. they're responsible for a lot of surface action, Carl. You know, when, when they're feeding, uh, they have a slash at everything, and they do tend to feed in... In, in little schools, two little packs. But I, I caught one uh, fishing for crabs in Lake Macquarie with hand lines. I prefer to use hand lines and witches hats. We've spoken about that on the program, how damaging they are to turtles and ghost fishing. But I caught one on a, on a hand line on an old cork on a six-pound line, and we let it go, obviously. It was the size of a pick handle, and I tell no lie, and I fought it and fought it and fought it. took an old piece of mullet on the bottom. They usually take on the top, but... This thing was just the biggest I'd ever seen. I'd love to know from our other big fish listeners how big they get. But this one, dead set, the, the, the length of a pick handle. That's interesting, Scott, because uh, I've only ever seen uh, much slimmer-bodied species or members of the species. But So would I, uh, yeah. And, and, but uh, according to some, despite their colour and the colour of their flesh, they are reasonable eating. But I had no knowledge at the time, but I've got no desire to, uh, well, uh, deplete what I regard as a rather uh, rare uh, species of an oddity amongst the uh, yeah, fish, particularly yeah. this far south. But with climate change, who knows? They possibly, yeah. like many others, will start to move further south. Well, I, I don't know about that. I let this one go in Lake Macquarie, but honestly, it was a beast of a thing. I, no word of a lie. It was as like as, an eel, as, like a large yeah, eel, big as my wingspan, and vicious, uh, vicious teeth, like one of those alligator gars from the deep south, or uh, just uh, amazing. And and the fight was incredible, and and the jumping. I mean, it was an, an incredible capture on a. I, I'll have to look up how big big they do get, Carl. But uh, this on very light line, Scott. Yeah, it was they, six. They certainly go crazy. Six pound line. I was just oh, lucky. Oh, lighter, lighter. I was using yeah, at the time yeah. at Jimmy's Beach. Oh, this uh, big one I got was six, six six kg. Yeah, this big one I got was about six pound line. So, you know that they're a spectacular fish, and I don't know of anyone who eats them either, Carl. I think the green bones, greeny yeah, blue turn, bones, put you off. Turn people off. But it was just interesting. We'll leave them there for the osprey, Scott. Yeah, it was interesting because they are, need they, them more than we do. They are a surface fish, so I guess they prey on fish. In the shallower water yep. of the surface, they can't dive down too far. And I've seen them with lots of ludric. I've seen them with leather jackets. It's funny at, at uh, uh, Harry Moore Oval at Tookley, they've uh, perched, made a nest on top of a light tower there at the cricket yes, ground. Yes, and I've seen those. People can uh, <laughs> people can be fielding a deep backward square and all of a sudden have a, a frame of a leather jacket fall on their head. <laughs> <laughs> It's great stuff. But the, the news is, of course, the ones on the light tower at Central Coast Stadium have had triplets. They've had three very healthy chicks. 
Yeah, are born and catch those chicks. Good. And you'll see mum and dad, uh, who are called Rosie and Hatch, uh, bringing the food up, and the uh, lionesses are watching it there at the moment. Uh, the uh, English women's football team who are training out of Central Coast Stadium. Uh, so they've become the aunties for these amazing critters. But, uh, yeah, it is a positive story, Carl, and I think sometimes with what's going on in the world can get us down, so it's nice to talk about uh, nature. Good news. Yeah, for nature rebounding. And... Good to talk to you on The Big Fish. Thanks, Scott. Thanks very much. Bye now. Things outside are a little too flat for Stinker. There's no rock and roll. There's no wash to fish, his usual haunts. So he's going to take us... Up a lazy river by the old mill run The lazy, lazy river in the noonday sun Linger in the shade of a kind Up a lazy river with Stinker after the news. The Big Fish on ABC Radio. Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. G'day, Scott. How are you going this morning? I'm going well. You know, I thought of you the other day. We drove up to Coffs Harbour for a, a footy tournament for the little bloke, and it was great. Gee, they looked after us up there. Wonderful facilities there and I, I went over the new highway bridge which is a great piece of engineering and I looked down the Karua River and there was just miles of untouched mangroves and beautiful waterways all the way down to the old town and the bridge and I, I thought of you and I thought of this song Up a lazy river by the old mill run The lazy, lazy river in the noon <laughs> and I just yeah. thought, Stinker, when the, the seas are flat, he can go up yep. the lazy river, can't you? There's so much country to explore there. Oh, it, uh, I've been here for a long time, Scott, and I've only scratched the surface. I, I learnt a lot. Quite a few years ago, I wrote a book called Oyster Man. It took me nearly four years to write that book, uh, and... Over that four years, I went way up into the port um, to places called Cannington and, of course, Karua is the, was the heart of the oyster industry, but Swan Bay, Bay Swan Bay, all these little places um, that are hidden away, way up in the western corner of Port Stephens. And the fishing options up there... I mean, I was writing a book, but I'm forever thinking about the fishing options. And I'd speak to the oyster men up there in their sheds and I'd say, what's the fishing like up here? Oh, fish, they said, as many fish as you want, like <laughs> brim particularly. They hung around all the oyster sheds because they, you know, pick on all the oysters that were open and have a good feast there. Um, but they said, flathead, there's flathead all over the place. And Mulloway get in amongst their, the leases uh, and oh, and crabs. Mud crabs cause problems 
because they burrow in underneath the buildings and some of the buildings collapsed because because of the mud crabs. And so they never spoke very nicely about the fishing because the fish were more of a problem. That, and, and they'd never spend much time, like, rarely go fishing. But the, the brim were the main concern because brim would, would chew and munch on young thin-shelled oysters. So brim uh, fish were a bit of a nuisance and crabs were a bigger nuisance. For a fishing-obsessed person like yourself, these people are absolute gold, aren't they? They spend every waking minute of their lives on the, on the river. That's right. That's right. But anyone who was, um, particularly now with boats the way they are, you can get around so easily. All these fellas used to mainly row. <laughs> They're all rowers, <laughs> so they only really worked in a, a reasonably sm- small area. But the, the boats that are available now opens up the entire river system and you can go way up the, the Kurula River up as far as Allworth. There's, there's miles and miles up there. And the fishing amongst the mangroves and the drop-offs and the weed banks, are just and that's just the Kurula River. And then, of course, there's uh, Tilligary Creek. Now, it sounds like the creek's only a creek. It's quite a significant waterway. And, and the fishing up around there, Again, mainly we're talking flathead and brim. That's what we're mainly talking about. But uh, down, of course, closer to the heads of the whiting, beautiful whiting, um, and there's Mulloway. It's a wonderful port for Mulloway. Uh, Oh, gee. Uh, Particularly around any uh, structure. Well, that's the same old story with most fish because all fish have when you're looking for fish, there's a reason for them to be where they are. They're not going to sit out there in the middle of a desert doing nothing. They're going to be somewhere for a reason. So then you look at the Karua Bridge or any structure, sunken sunken boats. There's a, um, a boat that sunk in 1940 called the Psyche, and that's at um, Salamander. Now, that, again, is a tremendous uh, attractor of fish. So any but I reckon if you ask me the best Mulloway spot in Port Stephens, I'd have to say the Karua Bridge. Yeah, I can back that up. I've told the story of Madar, who lived there catching the 62-pounder when I was an eight-year-old. That's still indelibly burnt into my brain. What about the, the flathead moving through the system, Stinker? Because everyone loves flathead, and they're easy to catch and great to eat. Do they go down towards the the sea and then back up into the estuary or do they stay up in in the creeks and the rivers? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I'm not real sure. I've asked myself that on, on a few occasions because at certain times of the year, you can catch really beautiful flathead off the beaches. And even around on the um, sand, out a bit deeper, sometimes in 40, 50 foot of water, um, out at sea, you'll get duskies. And we've seen big, we've seen, yeah, duskies. We've seen big ones on Broughton Island too, haven't we, at Coalshaft Bay? You know, they'll go across there late in the season. That's right. So whether Broughton Island has its own population of of flathead, that may well be the case. But I'm not too sure just, say, a flathead from Karua, um, does he go out in, or his relatives go out into the ocean at, at some stage? I'm not sure. I'd certainly like to know. Maybe fisheries could answer us that. But just one story that's passed my mind on Mulloway, 
And this is during the oyster um, growing years and years ago, they put fences around in the water, fences around the oyster racks to protect them from brim. Because, as I said, brim would chew on the younger oysters and just wipe. You can lose a whole lot of oysters in one night if the brim got stuck into them. But also what happened, they'd put the wire around it, but inevitably the wire would rust. And what happened in one particular case of an oyster grower up up there, they... um, the wire rusted and a school of mullet at the top of the tide went through the hole and got inside the uh, where the leases were, which were fenced off. So they basically trapped. Now, when the tide dropped, they're in very, very shallow water uh, and they couldn't find their way out. But in the meantime, a couple of mulloway followed them in. Oh, and, right. and the water went down to sort of ankle deep and here are these whopping great fish flapping around in the shallows. And all they needed to be do was picked up. Um, that's the easiest way of catching them, of course. <laughs> it's a cat- there, catching there, there them. There were so many stories I was, I was told, um, things you don't even consider. You wouldn't consider walking around picking up um, away in ankle-deep water. But another one I was told over at Pindyma, and that's on the other side of the harbour, Beautiful. These are beautiful places. Oh, dear. Pendime is just a, a step back in time. But at one stage, it was a very, it was a focus of all the uh, um, activity in Port Stevens. And one fishing family w- did something very clever that at, at the top of the tide, they would um, take a net and take it from the shore out 50 metres to a peg 50 metres out in high tide, and then run it parallel to the bank to another peg and then back to the bank. So it was a three-sided net with the fourth side being the shore. And then when the tide went out, they the fish couldn't get away. So that's how they used to catch their fish. Well, that's a very economical method. You'd reckon that the, uh, the Waramai people would have done similar sort of stuff to that? You'd think so, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never seen any evidence of it, but that seems to me like a pretty simple way of going about things, doesn't it? It does. I love that story you got from the, the crabbing family, professional crabbing family, about the, the early days when they get the crabs, the blue swimmers in those sorts of nets and, and the mud crabs, and they'd have a special stick to crush them and throw them in the bush so they, they didn't that's fancy old, them. That's right. Yeah, they, they had no commercial value at all. And in fact, they were a nuisance because they were hard to get out of the net and sometimes they would tear the net. So they had a pulper and they would just pulp not only um, blue swimmer crabs and and, uh, mud crabs, but also squid. Squid were of no value either. So everything was just tossed in the bush. Just amazing. I mean, they're they're the best things in the sea to eat. Well, it took the Greeks and the Italians to teach us all this sort of stuff. Um, we, you know, we weren't going to try anything that looked like a crab. I mean, where, where do you start? <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, but no, no. So uh, in these conditions, which are so calm, it is just incredibly calm and has been. And I think it's going to, uh, you know, the next week looks like it's going to remain. But to jump in a boat and launch it in Nelson Bay or 
Soldiers Point, and then go on a trip. There's one place you've got to have a look at if you're a boating enthusiast. It's called Fame Cove, and it's directly opposite um, Soldiers Point, straight across uh, onto the onto the northern side, and it's a protected little bay. Oh, just beautiful, absolutely beautiful, surrounded by um, woodland and thick trees and and you're in the it's like you're in another world if you're in Fame Cove. But then, of course, up you go to Karoor and up further up the river, or you might want to go up to Tea Gardens and Hawks Nest underneath the bridge and into the Mile Lake system. The mind boggles as to what you can do. Wow, I mean, there is a, a segment on every one of these places, isn't it? But I just looked at that vast Karua system. You really get a better view from it off the, the new highway bridge. And I hadn't been up there for a while. And I just thought, wow, it's limitless. And, and I've caught bass way up and then further up some of the tributary streams that start up in the Barrington Tops and the, the Great Dividing Range actually have trout in them as well. So if you wanted to, to follow the Karua River, you could make a real expedition of it, Stinker. Oh, most definitely. And what is the most pleasing thing, and I know that bridge you're talking about when you drove over it, and if you look to the west, um, you'll see, uh, and and the east as well, you'll see these magnificent mangrove forests, um, and they're healthy mangroves, and of course we've spoken about it, they're the first link in the chain um, of whether the health of the river system So at the moment, we've got everything under control here in Port Stephens. We're going extremely well. The fishing is excellent. Um, We're not um, having to battle any development that we think might threaten what we've got because it's very precious, but fragile too, Scott. So it's it's an ongoing issue to, to be to be alert to anything that you think might upset the, the apple cart. That's right. I think beautiful fame cove at one stage was under a, a bit of threat. So hopefully that, uh, you know, we, we need that balance, don't we? We need the, the, the natural world and, and development to be in sync. Of course. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, so look, so far so good. And, and the, the islands, if you, you know, I mean, these are the times to visit the islands out off the coast too. If, you've, if you're a boating person, launch at Shoal Bay, go straight out through the heads. I love motoring underneath as close to the heads as you can get and looking straight up. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like a tall building, but it's a mountain, a rocky mountain with these beautiful vegetation on it. And you think, how old is this joint? You know, when... You know, it's sort of a bit too hard to comprehend. But then you go to Bundlebar Island and Cabbage Tree Island, uh, and they're just right in front of the heads. And that's not that's only a short trip. And Fair Dinkum, they are just beautiful, really beautiful. And all uh, protected by national parks. Hey, tight line stinker. Obviously, the fishing, the the type of fishing you do, the inshore reefs that need a bit of wash and a bit of rock and roll, aren't firing. But there's still plenty to do in your neck of the woods. There certainly is, Scott. Hello. The Big Fish on ABC Radio. It's The Big Fish and all roads lead to Darling Harbour. Well, all waterways lead to Darling Harbour for the Big Boat Show in Sydney. Tim Stackpool is a spokesperson for the event. He's on site this morning. They're putting the finishing touches in 
filling the giant um, fish tank with millions of litres of water, uh, putting up all of the, the hoardings and things. So if there is a bit of banging and a bit of noise, Tim, we know what's going on. That's right, Scott. It is a, a lovely morning, actually, at, at the moment here at Darling Harbour. But the uh, the boats start to come in today, Scott. You know, we'll have the Nomad 101 come in, which is a, a, a huge boat on Cockle Bay there. And it probably will dominate the landscape. But I've got to tell you, we've got more than 200 boats coming into Cockle Bay for the show, which uh, opens on Thursday. And that's actually a, a few more than we had in that last show before COVID, you know, which was a, a, a pretty big show. It was 2019. So we've got more boats on Cockle Bay than we had back then. And then in total, like including the halls, I think that takes us up to around 600 boats, which you'll see at the show if you if you come along uh, next weekend or starting on Thursday, as I say. But quite a remarkable sight, of course. It's just lovely to see the show back in full strength again, you know, we had a few false starts through COVID, unfortunately. We had one which was almost ready to go, but we had to pull the pin on that, unfortunately. But it's just wonderful to be back again, Scott. And, and plenty of stuff, you know, for the, for the folks that love fishing as well. Uh, great tackle to be found. You talked about that fishing tank as well, which is always a great demonstration of how those lures work as well. And this year, too, if you come along to those fishing masterclasses, you'll see this new device, this drone, this remote-controlled drone, which you can use not only to find your fish, but perhaps in a way catch your fish as well, this underwater drone. Some spectacular things to see at the Sydney International Boat Show this year, Scott. <laughs> the fish don't stand a chance. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> uh, Tim, I, I uh, earned the nickname the Barnacle when I went to this years ago. Uh, you and I... <laughs> Wandered around. We had such fun. Uh, yeah. I, ju- I jumped on every luxury boat. I've got a 10-foot tinny, you know, so yeah. I thought this was just paradise. And they said, that bloke's back again. He's been in the galley for four hours. So yeah, I'm just making yeah. a sandwich down here. Yeah. Some that are just out-and-out mm. fishing machines. Some of those big offshore game boats are just remarkable now with the, the fit-out and the technology. It really is great to dream, you know. Some of them, if you win the, the lottery, you might be a chance to to own oh, one, yeah. but, but there are other ones too. The little ones are inside, aren't there? There are lots of little runabouts and things that you can, little inflatables, lots of motors and mm. lots and lots and lots of fishing gear and lots of experts on how to fish that gear. I think that's what I like, the fact that if you bought uh, a packet of soft plastics or someone, then the representative from that company will say, right, yeah. you know, this is a retrieve, and then you can go over to the tank and see a real expert uh, fishing that technique, showing you how to, to work that lure uh, to the optimum, uh, whether the fish in the tank respond. They've, they've seen it all, those ones. <laughs> yeah, last time we did a major survey of visitors who came to the show, 60% of the people who came said they had an interest in fishing. And that's why there's such a focus on it at the show. It is a boat show, but of course, you know, that extends out remarkably and, and I, I guess not uh, unusually towards fishing, Scott, as well. One of the things I think that sets the Sydney show apart from other shows, not only in Australia, but right around the world, is that there's such a diversity of craft to find. And you talked about the luxury boats as well, but the the, the scale from one end to the other, you know, is enormous. So, yes, you can come and see your luxury boats and hang about in the galley, as you said, uh, Scott. But the other thing is, is that at the other end of the scale, you know, you can pick up the tinny. You can pick up the little kayak, you know. I was just about to to say that kayak fishing is just taking off. You get fit, you know, whether it's a pedal one or a paddle Mm. one. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're fitted out with fish finders and, and mm. rod holders and uh, coolers for your fish. And, and, and they're just a great way to fish. I used to do a lot of kayak fishing, but now they're these purpose-built ones. Yeah. are just so much fun. And, and you can launch them anywhere. That's the beauty of it. I think 
you know, you can get to those spots where, wherever you can drive up and, and throw them into a creek or, or to an estuary uh, or even the offshore brigade. And, and that kayak fishing is just big, big time now. A lot of people doing it, lots of dedicated channels on YouTube, lots of experts, mm. lots of tips and techniques there as well. So you can buy one of those from, from you know, in the in the th- three or four, <laughs> you know, uh, digits up to something in, in the, oh, yeah. uh, the six digits there. Well, that's right. And some of them are inflatable as well, Scott. So if storage is a problem, if transport is a problem, you can get these inflatable kayaks too. And that, that's what I mean. There's such a diversity of, of opportunity to see how you can, not just for fishing, but getting out and, and enjoying the water. But in terms of fishing too, if you just love throwing a line off the pier, uh, then you're going to love coming to the show as well to... to, to to learn about the techniques, as you say, the masterclasses, have a look at the gear, perhaps make a purchase if you want to. But the other remarkable thing about the show, too, is there's so much that is outside in the open. The guys, I'm just looking at them now, they're setting up some of the outdoor displays. You know, uh, Andrew Eddingshausen is going to come along. He's going to have an outdoor section as well. We're going to have the Discover Paddling and Sailing area, too, which is all outdoors. So... Anyone who's visiting Darling Harbour, whether they want to come to the show or not, can actually get involved and enjoy and learn about what it's like to get out on the water in the beautiful waterways that we have right throughout New South Wales. Yeah, ET's been doing a lot of work with maritime on safety and and life jacket wearing as well. And, uh, you know, you can pick up bargains there too, can't you? If if you need a new life jacket or something, they're they're always uh, up to do a bit of a deal. Well, that's right. There's huge competition here, as you can well expect. The, the, as I said, Cockle Bay, the marina there is at capacity. The exhibition halls, they're at capacity. We can't fit any more or more exhibitors in. And there's a great sense of competitiveness that actually exists within the within the exhibitors at the boat show. And for that reason, as you say, Scott, you do get to pick up some of those deals. And the other thing is, too, don't forget about these, uh, these trawling uh, motors and engines as well, which are very popular this year. The type of technology that's put behind those when it comes to the electrics and the, and the, and the battery power behind them, we're seeing some interesting new innovations this year, uh, some great longevity in terms of battery power with electric motors too. So worth coming along to learn about that as well. Yeah, but lots of electric motors. They're really starting to uh, find a niche as, as uh, fuel prices get, go through mm. the, the roof. We're speaking with Tim Stackpool. Uh, down there at Darling Harbour at the International Convention Centre, and then you walk through the place straight onto the water. I mean, you couldn't get a, a better purpose-built venue. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And we've always said throughout, look, Scott, you know I've been involved in the show. This would be my 20th, 23rd year uh, with the Sydney International Boat Show, and, and no other show can enjoy the, the type of location that we have here, the amount of space we have on the water for the boats, and then, of course, you have the indoor exhibitions as well, as you say, at the convention centre. It's just a remarkable spot for a show, a beautiful spot in Sydney anyway, but uh, just remarkable for anyone who may come to visit across the state to have a look at what's on offer. Yeah, yeah. Look, and if you've won the lottery, you just give them the money and <laughs> throw, throw the bow line off and off you go. <laughs> off you go. Hey, um, it's a real accessory sport fishing too, isn't it? You know, it can be minimal. You can talk about stinker-type fishing with a with an old hand line and, and a rusty hook and, and catch fish, or all the gadgets and gizmos. There are so many inventions. There are so yeah. many things that, uh, Australia particularly, very innovative. A lot of Australian people there showing off their wares, a lot of uh, our R&D. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the fish pineas have been around for a while, and, you know, they use like a sonar and an ultrasonic system. 
Uh, they've improved leaps and bounds, even in just, you know, I mean, I've talked about 20 years with the boat show, but it's a relatively short history when it comes to that sort of technology. But that's remarkable. The GPS, the chart plotters that are all available as well, Scott. Uh, and a lot of this, as you say, harks back to safety as well. Having the right gear, learning about the right gear, uh, having the technology to be able to support that and and to to ensure that not only do you have a great day out on the water or a great day fishing, but you have a real safe one as well. Uh, and even these things are built into watches now, Scott. You know, I mean, you can have your GPS and your chart plotter and your and your fish finding app all giving you information on the on the watch on your wrist as well, which is, uh, as you say, uh, remarkable innovation. And much of it, of course, developed in Australia, and and rightly so too. I mean, we've got a beautiful coastline right around the country, and and uh, what is it they say? Um, necessity is the mother of invention. It is. That's, that's right. The reason yeah, why, so yeah, for sure. We've got so many fishing opportunities. We're a fishing. Nation, I love those uh, watches that run your um, electric motor with the spot lock too. The, the oh, elec- yes. electronic anchor. You just you're on yeah. the fish. You don't want to drop the anchor and pull the anchor up. You, you hit the button and it holds you exactly in place through the GPS satellites. Yeah, there is an, indeed a, a boating safety zone, as we call it, Scott. So you've got plenty of the government authorities and the reg- regulatory bodies who will be there. And and, uh, and as you say, you, you do need to know, you know what's legal to do when you are out fishing in terms of sizes and catch and what you need to throw back. That sort of thing's important. All those guys are there with all of that great information. Uh, and uh, look, I, you know, I, I received my uh, boating licence, when was it? Probably 10 or 15 years ago. I, I was sitting and I, I saw the boating safety presentation uh, twice a day for six days, Scott. I was sitting there watching that. And then after the show, I went to Maritime and I sat for my uh, boating license and, and I got it straight up purely because I'd sat through so many of those presentations. <laughs> I could almost recite it verbatim. Uh, and for that reason, I don't, and I kept my boating license up for that reason. But look, if you if you haven't received it and you want to know some information about about what you need to do in order to be able to get your license, uh, then come along to the show and there'll be plenty of presentations and people to talk to. Tight lines, buddy. Thanks for joining us from down there as the finishing touches go on this huge uh, celebration of, of fishing and boating down there at Darling Harbour gets under, underway on Thursday uh, and people can get along with the family. Thanks for your time, Tim. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. Tim Stackpool there at Darling Harbour for the Big Boat Show kicks off on Thursday in Sydney. <laughs> On ABC Radio, it's The Big Fish with Scott Levi. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.